For this Establisher Gathering, we're actually finishing our Hebrews study that we have been in for almost the course of the year. We are finalizing it with Hebrews chapter 13. Um, our iTunes podcast posts have been a little erratic lately with some of the travel that my husband and I have done, so hopefully those of you that follow this podcast and are encouraged by listening to our gatherings uh, will be encouraged by this final installation of Hebrews. It's been an awesome study um, with all of us kind of throughout this book and interestingly we started with chapter 10 and then went backwards um, and went to 1 and just have seen how much better Jesus is in every way through this book. Um, the comparisons, the contrasting, it's dealt with um, the heart of the matter, it's dealt with theology, it's dealt with the gospel, that's really kind of what was laid out so clearly in Hebrews 10, which is why I started us there for this entire study. But tonight, ending with Hebrews chapter 13, I really want us to see the practicality of the scripture as well. That yes, it deals with the internal, and it deals with the things of the heart and the mind, but it also is very external, and it deals with our behavior. And it invites us and commands us even to certain verbs and actions that should be a byproduct of our lives being founded in the person of Jesus. And so we're just going to look at uh, 10 of these verbs here in Hebrews chapter 13. And we're going to stay a little bit longer on some. Uh, there's just a few that I feel like God wants us to sit a little longer on and then we'll We'll go through quickly some of the other ones. But as we go through these verbs and actions, I just want you to ask yourself two questions continually around each of these verbs. Have you been a recipient of this verb? Have you seen it done? Have you been a recipient of it? Second thing is, have you been an initiator of any of these verbs? Have you actually done this, offered this, given this? experience this. Um, so the first one really as we look at Hebrews chapter 13, I'm not going to read the whole chapter uh, for us today, but hopefully y'all have done that and you're familiar with the passage um, because it just really gets right into uh, verbs pretty quickly from the very beginning. So the very first one is just an invitation to continue in love. So after this whole book, right, this entire letter, to the Hebrews, to the people, of the, you know, the Hebrews people, he's saying, look, I just want you to continue in love. I want you to keep on, keeping on. And not just in duty or ritual or obligation, but in love. And as we know, in Greek, we've, many of us have heard this, there's multiple words for love. There's eros, which is a sexual erotic love. There's, of course, agape, which is always for, uh, you know, separated unto God. It's a very divine love, only can come from Him and, and through Him. Um, and then there's this idea of phileo love, which is actually the type used here. Uh, there's the other one's called sorga, which is a, a familial mother-to-child, brother-sister love, which is the idea of affection for a friend, a brotherly friendship, a sisterly friendship. And I really even kind of consider it as this idea of otherness, selflessness, a true, genuine friend. Unfortunately, I don't know why in this day and age, it's hard to count on one hand 
the genuineness of the friends you have. Like truly. Yes, we all may have lots of people that know us and lots of people that we know. But who are the ones that you're continuing in love with? That you're continuing in love toward? And this idea of brotherly, friendly affection and service for each other. Think about your community and think about who you're doing life with. Are they continuing in love with you? And are you continuing in love with them? Or is it just all about you? Or is it all about them? That'll weed out your friends pretty quickly if you can answer some of those questions. Number two verb here in chapter 13 of Hebrews is entertain believers often. Now here he uses the word stranger. Um, but that's not really the way we would use stranger. It's actually uh, people that you don't know that are of the faith. So the, these are people that are, are not within your immediate best friend circle, but they are like-minded to you. They are fellow believers, intimate Christians. Um, and he's saying, entertain these strangers, entertain these believers often. So really, this verb, this number two, is a how for number one. This is one of the ways that you can continue in love, that you can keep living your life in the love of Christ, is are you entertaining people that are outside your little network of influence? Whether it be a neighbor that's a believer. Now, granted, we obviously can entertain the lost, okay? We can reach out to the lost and um, witness and give our testimony and that kind of thing. But that, again, isn't really what he's referencing here. He's referencing, are you serving the body at large? Are you entertaining people that, were, that are without your circle, but that are Christians? Are you showing hospitality to these type of people? Now, this was interesting because not everybody, right, um, loves hospitality in, in the way that we think of it. You know, opening up your home and having dinners and that kind of thing. Josh and I just, that's our MO. That's just kind of how lived when I was single. And ironically, it's kind of how he lived when he was single too. We were always the person to gather people together and we just enjoy doing it. We really, we do feel it's actually a gift and a calling and something that we um, as believers are just humbled to carry. Um, but here's the interesting thing here. The idea that that there was this level of hospitality to strangers really came from the fact that traveling believers back in these cultures were unsafe to stay in motels or inns. It was typically a place of prostitution and immorality. And so as a believer, you would never harm your reputation or be wrapped up in the things of darkness, okay? And so within the body of people, within the church at large, there would be homes available to you to stay in. Don't you see that throughout all of Scripture? You see it really a lot in, in the Gospels. You see people staying in the homes of each other, breaking bread together. That's a reason. That was a cultural reason, um, just as much as it was a spiritual reason. So yes, there is this idea of hospitality in, in terms of opening up your home and setting a table and, and hosting, but it, it goes deeper than that. 
It's really a heart attitude. Do you have a hospitable heart? Doesn't matter the square footage of your home or the amount in your bank account to serve someone or to do a dinner or to host a party. That's not really what he's talking about. Hopefully y'all know now as you read the scripture and you really hear the heart of the author, in this case I think it's Paul, but it's God through Paul, God through the authors of the scripture, I hope you would now know to hear the intent, not just to read the black and white words and write it off. This is not saying everybody, every woman, open your house and throw a dinner party. Not necessarily. He's calling you to have a hospitable heart towards strangers. This was a Christian to Christian that's a little beyond your sphere of influence type relationship. Do you have that? Or are you pretty much a homebody in the sense that you just deal with the people that are in your life and that's it? Um, it's pretty interesting what you find when you begin to love on people that are not necessarily those that you would hang out with all of the time. Um, there was an interesting guideline in a book of wisdom back in maybe 90 AD or so called the, the, the Didic. Not sure if I'm saying that right, but this is from the blueletterbible.org website with a lot of different commentaries. And it was obviously a manual for the early church, for the early Christians, really, on how to, quote unquote, entertain strangers. Because people could take advantage of that, obviously. False prophets at the time that were claiming Christ that really just wanted your free food and your home and a place to rest could stay with you for three days. And this this manual, if you will, was really giving them some assistance in how to do that. So you're not living in fear and closing your doors and not being hospitable, but nor are you being taken advantage of at the same time. So I think for us, I just sense the, the Lord in my heart is saying, you know, to y'all tonight, is your heart hospitable? Is it open? Are the rooms of your heart available to engage with people? Whether or not your actual walls and home are. I hope that would be great. We love it. We welcome y'all to, to come over anytime and, and to do life like that. But it's really an attitude of the heart. We see this kind of again in Romans 12, 13, when the Greek word there for hospitality is literally used as a love for strangers. So it is, it's not just the element of hosting a party. It is a heart attitude. It is a, it is a posture of love towards other people, strangers. And in this case, it was Christian to Christian. Matthew 25 gives us the story where Jesus is talking. Y'all probably are familiar with this, but you really kind of start reading it in verse 34. And basically, Jesus is saying um, that when you do certain things to the least, you actually do them to him. It's another way of Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, do unto the glory of the Lord. Whatever you do. So you're entertaining, you're opening your, your home, or the opening of your heart to engage with people is to be done unto the glory of the Lord. In this little parable here in Matthew 25, starting in verse 34, he says, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is Jesus. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. And I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. It's an interesting um, kind of phraseology he uses here, because he actually uses similar words in Hebrew and strangers. And then he says, right here in verse 36, uh, of Matthew 25, or verse 37, the righteous man will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? They weren't even aware of it. It was so second nature. When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? It's like they didn't even remember. They just were doing it. And verse 40, the king will answer and say, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, to the Christians, to your family, to the body of believers, even the least of them, so not your best, you know, bestie, bestie person, you did it to me. Isn't that powerful? So have a hospitable heart, um, even if you're home for whatever reason isn't available or open. Do not be exclusive, but be inclusive to the body of Christ. Amen. Number three, moving through these verbs here. Remember those in bondage with mercy and compassion. And here he uses the idea of prison. Kind of interesting, based on what Matthew 25 just said. Hebrews 13 uses the idea of slavery and being ill-treated in prisons. And we're to remember those that are in bondage of some sort, okay, whether it's an actual prison or whether it's an addiction or whatever, remember them. Don't, don't outcast them. Remember them. Pray for them. Have mercy and compassion. Apart from Jesus, we would be no different than they. There's a little example of a lady named Brenda Spawn in Birmingham, Alabama, that started a center called the Love Lady Center. And it's, it's a really amazing story. I encourage you to go look it up, Google it. it. There's just so many neat videos and testimonials about it. But long story short, she envisioned one day on her walk this old dilapidated hospital. And she just stopped and she just felt the Lord in her heart saying, I want you to clothe and house the ill-treated and the imprisoned women. I want you to do that. And she said, but I don't have the money. I don't know how. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not that kind of person and through a series of events and frankly miracles millions of dollars were given to her and she was able to buy that exact hospital renovate it and turn it into a beautiful center a home for housing for over 400 women and children that have either come out of prison and are reallocating themselves back into normal life and have accepted Jesus of course they hear about Christ it's all faith-based and Christ-centered and biblically taught um, or they're coming out of an addiction, they've been ill-treated in some way, maybe it's a domestic violence situation, but she has dedicated this Miss Brenda her whole life to being hospitable to these, these women that, frankly, the society would just throw away and tried. Um, and the Love Lady Center is just an incredible example to me of when I read this passage of remembering and serving with compassion and mercy those who are imprisoned or have been in bondage. Number four, um, this is one that I want to sit on just for a little bit. Um, honor marriage and the purity of it. This is a big deal. 
This, this makes the list in multiple ways. We are living in a Christian culture. Okay, forget the world. I'm talking about our people. Okay, we're living in a Christian culture that is not faithfully doing either of these. Marriage, to some level, has become a mockery with divorce as an option for believers. And secondly, and probably even more disgusting, is a complete lack of reverence for the sacredness and the purity of the marriage bed. This isn't old school. This isn't archaic. This isn't generations past. This is what God's Word says. This isn't what I say. It is my story. It is Josh and I's marriage story. But this is what God's Word says, that we are to honor marriage above all things. And the marriage bed, the purity of marriage, the sexual union of marriage between a man and a woman, the way God intended and designed, is to be honored and held in high regard, not played around with and mocked and spit on and tried out. Y'all have heard the phrase, you've got to try and test car or test drive the car before you buy it and you've got to know if you're physically compatible and you probably should live together before you get married to see. Y'all, that, where do you get that from? That is not from God's Word at all. And He's talking to believers. I'm talking to believers. People who know better in the deepest part of their spirit and their heart that ultimately we want to be one with God. You cannot be one with God if you are one with sin. It doesn't work like that. Habitual sin where you're turning a blind eye to what God said and you're committing something without repentance over and over and over again, which sexuality seems to do, okay, that is a problem. We are not to test the limits and pervert the boundaries of marriage. It is a boundary. Sex is, is a bound, it has a boundary around it, ladies. It is not free for all. It is not available to all. It is not beneficial or profitable to those who are outside of marriage, period. It will harm you because it's being experienced outside of the original design for which it was created. And man, be careful because these are strong words. You will not enter the kingdom of God, it says. Be careful. Read in the scripture about what this says. Don't take my word for it. Take his word for it. And then don't selectively listen and selectively obey. Let your heart turn to repentance. Let your heart receive the freedom, actually, that comes from living within the guardrails that God creates. There's freedom in that. And your marriage will be unbelievably rich. And your marriage bed will be blessed and exciting and beautiful and pleasing and without any shame or guilt. You see, boundaries lead to greater experiences of freedom. It is the truth. God is not limiting you. He's actually liberating you to fully enjoy what He created, by the way. 
how he created it. I'm so passionate about this. Adultery and fornication, they're two different things, though similar, and they're, they're used here in this little section of Hebrews 13. But they're both dealing with sex outside of marriage. Sex on your own terms, not God's terms. Anything having to do with sex, not just the actual intercourse oneness part. We're talking about anything that leads up to that. Anything, for fornication and adultery, anything that's flirting with this temptation and not fleeing from it falls under one of these two words. The other interesting thing about the, the word fornication in particular is that it's actually used in Chronicles as a similar word to idolatry. Clear, he will have no other gods before him. He will have no other idols before him. There will not be a contest. There will not be a rival to his character and to his goodness and to his God headship. So sex before marriage, maybe your idol is your body. Maybe your idol is your need, your neediness, your desire for pleasure. Maybe your idol is just men being chosen. I don't know what it is. But I'm telling you, there is no contest between God and idols. The idols will not win. They will lose. And you will lose in the process if the allegiance doesn't shift. Adultery, of course, as we know, is having, sorry, is having sex outside of marriage with one spouse. Whether you're married and having sex with somebody else as an affair, or whether you're two single people living together, frankly, ladies, I don't even care if you're engaged. You're not married. It is adultery. It's a fornication. It's not permitted. Adultery implies unfaithfulness to God, not just to each other, your future husband and your spouse or your own body. Your body's a temple. Treat it like that. Don't stain it. Don't write up graffiti all over it and harm it and, and hurt it. It's a temple. It's a beauty. And it's for one person to enjoy and explore for the rest of life. Not many. Listen to this quote. The enemy of our souls wants to do everything he can to encourage sex outside of the marriage bed. And then he wants to do everything he can to discourage sex inside the marriage bed once a union is made. We need to recognize this strategy and never give it a foothold among us. Wow. Moving on. Number five, this verb. Be free from the love of money in your character. This is another biggie. Huge um, what should I say, measuring stick, I guess. I, I hate that phrase, but it's a huge telltale signal, okay, just like the other one is, of purity, of someone intimately walking with the Lord or not. If there is an obsession and a love, and I would even venture to say a fear, um, 
just a hyper focus in your character, then that's a flaw. Another way put, if you have it, it's not a bad thing, but that shouldn't define you. And if you need it, you're lacking it, okay, and you legitimately need it, that need should not consume you. There should not be love of or fear of money. Do not be hyper-focused on money in your character at any level. We gotta have money. That absolutely, we live in this world and this world's currency is dollars and cents. You gotta have it. It's not wrong to make lots of money. It's not wrong to, you know, be on the lower end of the spectrum and not make money. The, the error, okay, the, the fallacy here, the potential danger is to let it creep into your character. And let me tell you, that's subtle. You may not always notice that. Others around you will, and time will tell. But a creeping in of this love of money and need of money and fear of money and a tight grip on your life and on your wallet and a, almost a worship of your career and your title and your bonuses, that creeps in your character and it harms you over time. First Timothy 6, 10 through 11, if you'll turn there really quickly, talks a little bit about this idea. First Timothy 6, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with griefs. That is strong. Don't run after money. It will cause you to run away from the Lord. The love of money is the root of all different kinds of hurts, all different kinds of insecurities and evils. Get at the root and get it out. Turn with me to Matthew 6.24. Matthew 6.24. Therefore, everyone who hears the words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built himself on a rock. All right, sorry, that was Matthew 7.24, but that's a good verse too. <laughs> Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Ladies, it cannot be any more clear. Wealth inherently isn't wrong, but loving it, serving it, gotta have it, you're off track if that's crept into your character. You cannot serve, too. Your heart, your life, your service, the way it was designed is singular. It cannot be equally. You cannot serve money and serve God. Money serves us that we might serve the Lord. Money is at our disposal so that into the Lord's hands to use and to do with His good pleasure. And interesting, interesting that in this Matthew 6 chapter, the very next section of Matthew chapter 6 is the anxiety section where he says, do not be worried about your life, but what you're going to eat or drink or wear or what you have or don't have or what job you have. 
Isn't life more than food and your body more than what you put on? Come on. Look at the birds of the air. You who are being worried, how can you add anything to your life with worry? So isn't it interesting that he addresses the allegiance to either money or God before he gets into anxiety? Because based on where your allegiance is, you will either have the fruit of anxiety or the fruit of peace. If you're serving money, you're full of anxiety. If you're serving the Lord, you're in His company, you're in His allegiance, okay? You have the fruit of peace. The last verse is Ecclesiastes on this topic that I thought was pretty strong. Because y'all know Solomon was, was the wealthiest man uh, in the Old Testament, really in, in his era. You know, 400 wives and palaces and all kinds of stuff. I mean, he had made it, okay? If anybody had made it, he had made it. And listen to his summation statement about money and wealth. Of anybody you should listen to, it should be him. Um, of course, it's the Lord in him teaching us a lesson, but God let his life demonstrate a pretty strong principle. Ecclesiastes 5:10. listen to this coming from the wealthiest man of, in the world at the time. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves abundance with its income will not be satisfied. This too is vanity. You see, enough is never enough. Not with money. Not with sex. N enough is never enough. It always Lures, your, lures you in for more. There's never satisfaction attached to that. But if God is your satisfaction, if He's your wealth, because we are rich in Christ, there is so much satisfaction and contentment that you could ever imagine. That's really the core of what this is, this is talking about, isn't it? Are you content with what you have? Are you content with who you are? Are you? And how do you know if you're content? Take, a, take an inventory. Take stock of your life. The fruit of your life. Do you worry a lot? Do you have anxiety a lot? Do you have a ton of debt? Do you not tithe or give because you're gripping onto it so tight because you actually think you own it? What, what is the, the behavior of your life indicate? Are you content? Or are you coveting? Are you in the service of the Lord or are you in the service of money? Because you can't be both. Verse 6, if you flip back over to Hebrews, um, is the response of a content person. So you have to be content to be able to say Hebrews 13, verse 6. And so he's given us this charge in verse 5 to be free of money. And then those that are, those that are content, guess what? Guess what they say? So we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can a wallet do to me? What can my boss do to me? What can a, mo a, a promotion or a demotion? What can that do to me? My citizenship isn't here. My satisfaction isn't found in that. I am contented with what I have, with what I've been given. 
Yes, can you still desire? Absolutely. But you place those desires in God's hands to fulfill in His way. It's up to Him. And watch Him explode and expand different things for you and lavish you. But cause your character to be free of money. Philippians 4, 11-13 is probably one of the greatest passages on contentment. If you haven't memorized it, I really recommend that you do. In the deepest places of your heart, not just like a 3x5 card verse or an obligation, but really take it into your character. But I want you to hear it in the Amplified version. It says that, it describes really that being content is satisfied to the point where you are not disturbed or disquieted. You are satisfied to that, that point. Sorry, I, gotta, I just dropped something. i got to get my Bible. I want to read this whole passage for you in um, the Amplified Version. I had just had that one part printed out in my notes. But this is just too good. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Now, not that I am implying that I, I don't have any I have learned how to be content. Which is, I have learned how to be satisfied to the point where I am not disturbed or disquieted in whatever state I am. I know how to be abased and live lowly and humbly in strained circumstances. I know also how to enjoy plenty and live in abundance. I have learned in any and all circumstances the secret of facing every situation, whether well-fed or going hungry having sufficiency and enough to spare, or going without and being in want. Here's the secret. I have strength for all things in Christ who empowers me. I am ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses inner strength to me. I am self-sufficient because of Christ's sufficiency. That is so powerful. And will set you free when you know his character from the love of money in your own character. You see, God is calling us, ladies, to not only trust him for something, but to trust him in everything. John 14, 27, again amplified. Stop allowing yourselves to be agitated and disturbed. Do not permit yourselves to be fearful, intimidated, cowardly, and unsettled. Do not let money do that to you. Or life. Or people, for that matter. And trust yourself to the Lord. Be content. Moving on, number six, verb. Remember and imitate mentors. Follow your leaders. So this begs the question, who's your leader? Who are you following? You see, we don't only need godly leaders to rise up. We need godly followers to rise up. Are you following someone worthy of this description we're going to talk about here in the next couple minutes? Are you this person that someone else is following? Praise God if you are. You see, we ought to be surrounding ourselves with people that we want to emulate because of the depth of Christ in them. Do you have that? 
what is your community like? And then secondly, do you have people that you would want them to follow you? Could you confidently tell younger girls but beneath you, so to speak, in age or experience, follow me. I'm going to take you. Follow me. Emulate my life because my life is blessed. My life is full. My life is right with God. My life is pure. My life is rich with the love of God and all that comes with it. Follow me. Can you say that? It is not an arrogant statement. It's actually quite the opposite. It's a very humbling one. It's almost like you become a total conduit for someone to experience the life of Jesus. That's a true mentor. Do you have people in your life that you want to end up where they are? If so, then do what they did. Ask them, what did they do? What verses did they read? How did they fellowship with God? Get their tangible, practical wisdom, but seek their spiritual insights. Titus 2 is, is a pretty well-known mentoring ministry here started by a friend of mine in Atlanta, Regina Williams, who actually just passed away this, this past year of, of cancer. I knew their family for a long time and went to high school with their, their children. And she built this whole ministry on the idea of mentoring. But really, she took it straight out of Titus 2, which is the, the passage. It's Titus 2 and 3, talking about what older women should do with younger women and, and vice versa with men. There should be a sense of checks and balances and accountability of people that keep you on the right track, so to speak, but that also have lives that are ending and lives that are ahead of you that are where you want to be. You shouldn't be the ceiling in the room, right? There should be someone else there that you're like, man, I love her and her walk with the Lord and her insight and her marriage and her kids and her life. We're not talking about perfection, okay? We're talking about dependence. Someone who is so dependent upon God that it oozes through every area of their life and it is so attractive. Are you that for someone? And do you have that someone in your life? I wrote down a few quick qualities of what I would say is a good mentor, and I think a Regina would completely agree. Uh, prayerful, authentic. There's a biblical centrality to them, meaning the scripture is not just a book that's additive, okay? It's, it's it. It's authority. It's central. It's obeyed. It's cherished. It's loved. It's known. It's talked about. Engagement. This person is fully engaged with God and with you as a mentee. They're not just plugging in a, a play and a, you know program, okay? They're getting to know you as a person. They're doing life with you intentionally for a pretty long period of time. They're committed. They have perspective. They're older than you. They're wiser than you. They're a couple years ahead. They're, they're in a different stage of life experientially than you. They have perspective. And it's obviously first and foremost informed by the person of Jesus through the scripture. Are you that to somebody? Do you have that in your life? Verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 13 is, is just that, that call to action to remember people like that. Remember those who led you, those who spoke the word of God to you. 
and consider the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. I'm really humbled to have led intimately the girls I have led throughout my life and even establish her, though it's a, it's a bit larger and, and not in a mentoring type setting. But as God has called me, I have responded and I've taken a few girls throughout my life for a long period underneath my wing and very cautiously and trembly and humbly said what Paul said. And um, I believe it's in Corinthians 4.16, 1 Corinthians 4.16. Follow me. Go where I'm going to go. Do what I'm going to do. Because your life will change in the process. Because you're going to encounter Jesus like you never have before. And that is a very humbling position to be in in the life of somebody else. I hope you all all can be in that position someday. I hope you all can be a recipient of having someone in your life like that. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 is also Paul talking about the idea of imitating and modeling after you. Moving on, just three more verbs. Verse 7, or number 7. Do not be consumed or entertained by strange teachings or ideas. I could spend a long time on this one and I won't. But in short, ladies, there are a lot of doctrines and opinions and denominational stances and things that you can spend your life focusing on in a hypersensitive way that are not central to the person of Jesus. Don't make your life centered on that. It's not even worth it to really get into the, the depth of this conversation, but whether it's tongues or prophecy or dreams or healing or or whatever it is, don't make a a Jesus out of it. Do not let your heart be consumed by things that are on the periphery of a person. People can get so divisive over this. They can get so focused on this. They miss the entire centrality of the person of Jesus. And then, I mean, of course, they incorrectly uh, view these certain theological things. Jesus is what informs all of these theological issues. And he will make it clear to you, trust me. In this case, he's encouraging them that their heart would be strengthened with grace, not with law. We've talked a lot about this throughout our whole study of Hebrews. These people were getting enticed as Christians, okay, as, as Jews made complete. They were getting enticed to go back to the laws and the sacrifices and the rules and the religion and the, you know, slaughterings and all those kind of things. And so in this case, that for them was a strange doctrine. Okay, was it wrong? Not really. But was it right? Not really. It was obsolete. Jesus was to be front and center. And they were making the law and what they did for God front and center. Not really the grace. So the question here is, is what you're occupied with currently, right now, benefiting you and others and glorifying the Lord? Or is it creating division, confusion, 
just a total hyper focus on the issue to where you really haven't even communed with the person of Jesus lately, just take stock again. I'd write down 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 and Colossians 2.20, which talks a lot about um, destroying things that raise up against the knowledge of, of God and his character um, and just not being led into the elementary principles of the world, but to move on by, past them. So just be careful with what you're occupied with. Um, the things of God are good, but the person of God is better. Amen? Um, and then verse 13 is kind of interesting. Um, he, he does something here. He talks a little bit about the law and the animals and sacrifices and the law and that kind of thing. But then in verse 13, he, he gives an invitation. And he says, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Be a verb here is to bear his name. But you see, really in short, and in our lingo today, you've got to unfollow the world and follow the Lord. You've got to unfollow the world and follow the Lord. And where does God typically go? Where was he taken? Where did he spend a lot of his time? Where was he crucified? It is not a bed of roses to follow the Lord. It was outside the camp, outside the city, outside the culture. Y'all realize that that's where they actually put the trash. There was a trash heap for the city very close to Golgotha. The, the hill on which he was crucified, the king of all kings, was basically in a trash heap. There is misunderstanding and reproach, as this word uses here in the scripture, that come along sometimes with following Jesus. Are you going to be more about his name or your own? Will you be willing to go outside the culture would you be willing to unfollow the world to follow the Lord? Do you place your focus and your, your home in a city that isn't visible? Ask yourself those questions. Number seven, simply put, one of these verbs here uh, found in verse 15 and really the next couple verses is to praise God. Just praise Him. That's part of the evidence of being a Hebrews 13 radical believer is praise him. And then just four things that describe the kind of praise he's really asking for, this praise that would be pleasing to him, is it's offered to God through Jesus Christ in you. It is not self-made. It's really pretty awesome. Jesus in you praises the Father, not you mustering it up. The praise that pleases God actually comes from God. And it goes to God. Pretty cool. Number, number two, pleasing praise is offered consistently and continually. He says to continually offer up the sacrifice of praise, which is the third one. You see, it's not just worship on Sundays and this religious duty that's divorced from life. Praise, and if you really get down to the heart of praise, it's a sacrifice. And that's when it counts the most. When worship isn't easy. When giving thanks isn't seemingly possible, that's when you offer the sacrifice of praise and it is pleasing to the Lord. 
and then with our mouth, not just our, our intentions. Voice it. Talk about it. Don't just have a desire and an intention to worship God. But do it. Speak it. Declare it. He is worthy of it. Number eight, simply put, do good and share. Sounds pretty kindergarten to me and yet pretty profound. And then he references that sacrifice again. Do not neglect in doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Verse 17, our ninth verb is joyfully obey your leaders and submit to them. Don't do it with grief or begrudgingly. He says that, but do it with joy. He's kind of referencing some of the things he said earlier in the chapter. To obey your leaders, to listen to a mentor, to submit to authority, submit to your husband. And then verse 10, pray for the authorities in your life. Paul was obviously an authority in their life. He was a mentor in their life. And he asked for prayer. I asked for prayer. Pray for those in authority in your life. Don't worship them. Don't elevate them. Pray for them. And then verse 21, which is what he leaves us with and I want to leave y'all with. And I love this about the scripture because it usually always leaves us with this. Is that all of these were action verbs. Ten of them. Things that we're supposed to do, right? Verse 21 gives us our ultimate how-to. It's God's verb. It's his action. And you know what it is? It says in verse 21 that he's going to equip us for all this through Jesus Christ alone. Now may God of peace equip you in every good thing to do his will. All of these ten things are his will. He's going to equip you to do it. Working in you that which is pleasing in his sight. It is up to him, ladies, to equip and execute all of these things that we've talked about. As you stay connected in him, enabled by his strength. You see, the emphasis is always on who is doing the what. More than the actual what that's being asked. Isn't that amazing? He is our who. He is our how to do all this. Jesus enables us to do these verbs and these external things. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, Faithful is he who called you and he will do it. So I leave you with that trusting that you've been encouraged, that you know as you stay connected to him as the vine, he will produce these things in and through your life.